Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Thank you, choir. It is good to have them back. That song is called Psalm 34 because we are studying Psalm 34 this morning. So if you'll take your Bibles and be finding that particular psalm, we will read it in just a few moments. Many years ago, Northwestern University, which is located uh, near Lake Michigan, near Chicago, had a voluntary life-saving crew among its students. And one of those students became famous for rescuing shipwrecked passengers. It happened on September 8th of 1860 when a ship by the name of the Lady Elgin crowded with passengers with hundreds on board went down on the lake prompting the volunteer team into action. Among the team was a young man by the name of Edward Spencer who was intent on studying for the ministry. Seeing a woman out on the lake clinging to some of the rescue, uh, to some of the uh, uh, stuff that was floating around, I can't think of the word. Um, He jumped into the, the water, swam out and rescued her, brought her back to shore. He did this 16 more times that evening, saving 17 of the passengers until he finally collapsed on the shore from exhaustion and fatigue. He himself never completely recovered from the exposure of the chilly water that particular day, was never able to enter ministry, and lived the rest of his life disabled, though they did put a plaque up at the school showing and remembering his heroism. Years later, he was asked if anything about that night stood out to him, and here's what he answered. He said, of the 17 people I saved, Not one of them said thank you. Now, he didn't do it for the thanks, of course. But the reality is that we would expect that if someone saved all of these people, that they would search him out, at least the majority, if not all of them, would search him out looking for him that they might say thank you. And yet none of them did. Jesus tells a similar story. It's the story that's found in Luke chapter 17 the healing of the 10 lepers. Jesus heals all 10 of them. Only one of them returns to give thanks, and that one, a Samaritan. And Jesus says, where are the others? Only one of 10 came back. And because of that, only one of 10 received spiritual healing along with his physical healing. I've heard countless hospital bed confessions. Though, of course, I am not a priest. I go into these hospital rooms pre-COVID, and sometimes I hear the confession, preacher, I've told God, if he would just get me through this, I'm going to be different. I'm going to serve him. I'm coming back to church. I'm going to praise him. And you know how those things work out. The majority of the time, once they're out of the hospital, the crisis is over. They go back to living their lives pretty much like they did before. Certainly not praising God or serving him any more than they did beforehand. Psalm 34 is a psalm of David, and I am calling it a psalm of post-crisis. 
In other words, it is a psalm that shows us and instructs us on what to do after the crisis passes, after the trial is over. There are many psalms pleading with God to an end of crisis, to an overcoming of our enemies. And we remain at a crisis in our own lives. We still have many, many issues in our nation and in our world. And as a result, we are collectively asking God for deliverance. But this psalm shows us how we should respond when that deliverance comes. Rather than quickly returning to our old normal way of life and forgetting what we've been through and how God has brought us through that, we are to praise him and then instruct others. Our heading tells us that this is a psalm written in reference to a particular incident. Though, of course, you understand the heading is not inspired. It is not part of the, the original writing. It is simply put there for our benefit, showing us that most scholars believe that this psalm was written in reference to this particular event. Now, you can find this story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. David there is fleeing from Saul, and the situation has become so serious that he leaves his own land and flees to the land of the Philistines. Yes, the very people he fought when he killed Goliath. Gath was actually the home of Goliath, and David now goes to the king of Gath. And remember, he goes with the sword of Goliath. He had taken that sword from Ahimelech, the priest in Nam. Once he comes to the king of Gath, he pretends to be mad. He pretends to be insane. He is fearful of his own life, supposing that the Philistines will put him to death. And therefore, he pretends to be a madman. And the king believes him and sends him away. This is King Achish. Your translations there may say Abimelech, but many believe that Abimelech is a title, much like Pharaoh. And so 1 Samuel 21 tells us that the king was Achish. David then hides in a cave from which many believe that this particular psalm was written, or perhaps it was written sometime later than that. You don't see it in your English, but this is an alphabetic acrostic psalm which means that every verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet minus the last verse, which does not. This is a technique that was done not only for style, but more than likely for memorization. They didn't have copies like we have it. They had to memorize it. It is essentially in two parts, and so we will read it in two different parts. We'll start with the first 10 verses, and then we'll follow up later with the last of the verses. So this psalm of post-crisis, verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, all you, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Again, we'll pause there and we'll come back and read the rest of the verses in a moment. So keep your Bibles open. Two parts to this psalm of post-crisis. And the first part tells us that after the crisis is over with, we are to praise God for deliverance. That is essentially what David is doing in this psalm. He is looking back at the way God has delivered him from this particular crisis, and he is praising him as a result. And this praise, first of all, encompasses personal praise. That is David personally praising God for what God has done for him. Now, you might want to debate the morality or the ethics of this whole situation. Should David had lied to the king of Gath and pretended to be insane? There's certainly some ethical issues there. But regardless of how we conclude on that, we do know that it is God who has done the delivering by whatever means, and therefore it is God who is to be praised. And as we heard sung a moment ago, this is to be done continually, which does not mean that every waking moment we must verbally be praising God or singing praises to God. It simply means that in all kinds of circumstances, in all kinds of conditions, whether we are prosperous or not, whether we are in a crisis or whether at the moment we have great confidence in God, no matter what the circumstances, we are to be praising Him. Now, I realize this is difficult to do during difficult times. It is much easier to do when things are going well. So how can we bless God at all times, day and night? Well, we do it by trusting God regardless of our circumstances. It reminds me of what Paul wrote when he said, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself in. He says, whether I'm hungry or I have all that I need, whether I'm rich or poor, I'm content because he was trusting God. And so is the psalmist here. But in the context here, it is especially true after we pass through a crisis where we've been stuck in the midst of that crisis, we've prayed and we've asked God for deliverance. And now after what probably seems like a long time, God has indeed delivered and therefore we are to personally praise him. It is especially in these times that we must not forget this personal praise. Again, rather than moving on to our normal lives, going back to all of those things we did before the crisis hit, we must make sure we are personally praising God. It is God in whom we boast because it is he who has done this in us and for us. This is not a matter of our own accomplishments. It seems odd in verse 2 to have both the word boast and the word humility. But the psalmist is saying his boast is not in his own accomplishments. His boast is in the Lord, and therefore he is humble at the same time. It is the Lord who has brought about the deliverance, which brings rejoicing, which is proper. That is the proper response. David realized, as we should, that deliverance from a crisis does not come from our own ability or our own resources. So he is offering personal praise. But personal praise is never enough. 
Because personal praise, rightly understood, always leads to the desire for corporate praise. That is, if I'm praising God for my deliverance, then I want others to join with me, and that's what corporate praise is. That's what we see in verse 3. And that is the natural progression. If I have been delivered from a crisis and I'm praising God, I want other people to praise God with me. And so there we see the words magnify and exalt. Words that are often associated with songs of praise that we sing in church, but perhaps we don't often stop to consider what they actually mean. There are distinctions, and you can add the words uh, praise and bless along with them, but I'm just going to combine them all and say basically they all mean lifting up or honoring God. It means to make God great. Not that our praise adds to the greatness of God. That's not what I mean. But it means we are acknowledging the greatness of God, that he is greater than we are by far, and therefore he is worthy of our praise. So acknowledging that God is great doesn't add to his greatness, but we are magnifying and exalting him for his greatness, which is why in the Psalms you often see a recounting of past events in the midst of this praise. Because the psalmists are talking about how God has delivered them in the past, therefore he is great, and therefore they are praising him. These three verses are perhaps combined to be one of the greatest invitations in the psalms to corporate worship. David begins with personal praise in verse 1 and then invites all of us to join him. And don't underestimate the importance of corporate worship, even when you come and leave and feel like nothing has really changed. Don't discount the cumulative effect over time of corporate worship. I have been encouraged as people have started returning to corporate worship in person to hear some of them say, sometimes with tears, how they have longed for this regathering how they have missed it so much. And perhaps that is going to be one of the positive that flows out of all of this. And that is a re-emphasis on corporate worship, realizing what we miss when we are not together. Now, I'm grateful for the technology that is allowing us to, to do this during this time and have those who do not feel comfortable join us online. I am grateful for that. But it is never a substitute for in-person corporate worship because there is something specific and special about this dynamic of us coming together and praising God with one another. And then we come to verses 4 through 7. He's gone from personal praise in verses 1 and 2 to corporate praise in verse 3. And verses 4 through 7, we see specific praise reminding us that our praise should likewise be specific. It's not just general. It's not just, I praise you, God. It is specific in the sense that we are to praise him for specific activity in our lives and the life of the church. We've already talked about the setting of this psalm, and we've seen in other psalms that deliverance from enemies is a common theme. But this is not in this psalm a prayer for deliverance, this is a praise that deliverance has occurred, stated in multiple ways, as in the case here of poetry. And while I'm using the word specific, we might actually want David to be more specific. 
He doesn't get as specific perhaps as we would like, but he is clearly talking about a specific event in his own life when he had cried out to God, God had heard him and God had delivered him. So that this is not just a thank you God for my deliverance, but this is a recounting of the situation of the crisis and a thankfulness and a praise for delivering him from that crisis. Verse 5 reminds us that the more we look upon God rather than ourselves, the better off we will be. And that certainly applies to a crisis and even when we're not in a crisis. The more we focus on God and His greatness rather than our own circumstances, the more joy and contentment we will experience regardless of our circumstances. Now, it might surprise you to read in verse 6 that David calls himself a poor man. After all, he is at this moment the anointed next king of Israel. And yet at the same time, at this moment, he has virtually nothing. A few hundred men following him, and yet he's hiding in a cave in the land of his enemies. Whether he's the anointed king of Israel or not, he's certainly not experiencing that at the moment. This is such a marked contrast between what a man is, that is, he has been anointed to be the king, and the circumstances that he finds himself in, he is hiding in a cave in the land of his enemies from the current king. There is such a contrast between these two things that David recognizes his situation regardless of his future prospects, and he calls himself a poor man who doesn't even know if he's going to live another day or another month. This psalm is for anyone who finds themselves in trouble or alone. You can identify with David. But of course, this is not a universal promise that God is always and quickly going to deliver you from your enemies. We'll see in verse 19 that David acknowledges that the righteous have their share of affliction. But it is a praise that God did it for David in this case. And we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means we've seen God deliver in the past. We can trust him in the present that he's going to deliver in the future. Now remember, David's circumstances did not immediately change. He doesn't write this psalm, if indeed he wrote it in that cave, he doesn't write this psalm and immediately it's all over with. But his attitude changes and he is praising God for his deliverance. And he finds to be with Paul, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now we of course have to be careful when it comes to verse 7. Verse 7 talks about the angel of the Lord encamping around us. There was, so much, there was so much misunderstanding and sentimentality when it comes to believers and the topic of angels that we need to be careful here. I did a whole study one Wednesday night some years ago on angels, and I don't have the time this morning to go through all of that. But this is not justification for the popular belief that we all have a personal guardian angel, something that I do not think Scripture teaches but it is a testimony of the existence and ministry of angels among God's children there to protect us and fight against our foes. And then this first half of the psalm or the hymn closes with inviting praise from verses 8 to, through 10. Here is an invitation to try the Lord and see indeed if he is good. 
And remember, the goodness of God to his children is a recurring theme throughout the Psalms because it is part of the very fiber and character of who God is, while also being somewhat uh, being some, something we need to repeatedly hear in the midst of our personal or national crisis because it is the very thing that we begin to doubt. We know the Bible says God is good, and yet during the midst of our crisis, we are uh, questioning that. You will find yourself blessed if you take refuge in him, David says. He is urging us to come to God and put our trust in him and discover his goodness and his provision, even as David himself had. Now, if you grew up in a, especially a small church, especially a small church in the South, perhaps, you've been to many, many potluck suppers. And there is something that is universal about potluck suppers. There is always a senior adult lady who has a secret recipe that she won't tell anybody, but you've just got to try it. I mean, that's what she'll tell you. She'll come up to you in the line, especially if you're the preacher. They do this to the preachers all the time. She'll come up to you in line and she'll say, honey, you have just got to try this, but I don't like, no, you have got to try this. Taste it, and you will see that it is good. Now, David's not talking about a Southern Baptist potluck, but he's talking about the same kind of idea. Put this to the test. Experience the Lord, and what you will discover is that he is good, and he does satisfy. That is a recurring theme throughout the Psalms. Now, we see in verse 10 that lions are referenced there. We normally think of lions as strong and powerful, and no, this is not a reference to the local tiger that is on the loose. This is a lion, not a tiger, two different animals. But the psalmist uses the lion here not in a positive sense, but in a negative sense, in that the lion relies on his own strength, and as a result, he is like the confident fool who trusts in his own resources rather than in the Lord. And as a result, they suffer want versus the believer who lacks no good thing. All right, so all of that is the first half, and we will go quickly through the second half. So what do we do post-crisis? Number one, we praise God for deliverance. And number two, we instruct others for living. Verse 11, come, O children, Listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. 
Now, we're going to do some summarization here because the second half of this psalm really reads more like the Proverbs. That is, it's a statement after statement about wise living. And the point here is that when you have come through a crisis and when God has delivered you, you and I have a responsibility not only to praise him, but to instruct others about God's faithfulness and deliverance to us in the midst of and through these trials. In fact, that's one of the reasons for suffering. That's one of the greatest questions in the Christian life, right? Why do the righteous suffer? Well, one of the answers is that we suffer so that we can mature and grow and learn and then that we can teach others. And so he starts in verse 11 by saying, pay attention, listen carefully, and you may learn. If you desire a long life, and most of us do, I mean, people cling to life. I've been in a lot of these situations where someone is very ill, and yet they cling to life. There is just this natural instinct to want to live. And the writer here says, if you want a long life, then pay attention to what he has to say. Again, this is not a universal promise, but principles to live by in general that will provide a long and satisfying life. To fear the Lord is often viewed as negative. Our, our use of the word fear is negative. Our society says that we are to face our fears and overcome our fears so that we can wear a t-shirt that says no fear. But that is not what the psalmist says. The psalmist says there is a need for fear, and that is we need to fear the Lord. And so we normally translate that as a biblical awe or respect, which is accurate. But David neither defines fear by emotions nor by attitude. He defines fear by obedience. That is, the fear of the Lord is seen by our obedience to what he has said. So living in the fear of the Lord is more than a state of mind or heart. It is a life that translates to proper action. So pay attention. Secondly, guard your tongue, verse 13. Watch what you say. James has a lot to say about this. In his epistle, all five chapters somehow mention the tongue. The tongue is described as a world of iniquity, a fire. I'm sure you've been following the wildfires yet again in California. This particular one, having been set uh, by a gender reveal party gone wrong which ought to tell us something about these gender reveal parties, but that's a topic for another day. But this particular one, somehow these, this young couple set off some, some fireworks of some sort, and they didn't mean to do it, but it caused a fire. And last I checked earlier this week, there was nearly 9,000 acres that had been destroyed at obviously a cost of millions of dollars, not only to property, but in manpower that's being used to, to try to put this fire out. So this young couple is there to celebrate a joyous occasion. They have no intention of setting a fire, but they do, and it is extremely destructive. And that is exactly the way the Bible describes the tongue. You may not mean to be so destructive when you say something, but that is what happens according to the Word of God. Richard Baxter, a Puritan pastor from many years ago, described some 30 different sins of the tongue, 30 different ways, and he probably missed a few, that we can sin against the Lord in the use of our tongue. That is why the Bible is so strong against it, and yet we tend to treat it so casually. 
In verse 14, the command there is to pursue peace. And again, I, I'm, I'm uh, not going over every single thing here because uh, there are, there's much here. But turn from evil and do good. The way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked, something we've already seen in other psalms. Stay out of trouble. Don't be in places or be with people that are likely going to lead you into trouble. Peter quotes verses 12 through 16 in his first epistle as a promise of God's blessings to those who live godly lives. So it does pay to live righteously. So we are to turn from evil and do good and thus pursue peace. Although we know even the Bible admits that there are some people with whom we will not have peace. This is a needed call in the midst of our societal unrest. Uh, the calling for us is not to be selfish. The calling for us is to put the needs of the community ahead of our own and seek good and peace for the whole. And then in verses 15 through 18, we should know nearness. Again, that is the nearness of God. He uses human imagery here like eyes, ears, and face, showing that God is clearly near his children. Righteousness here does not mean moral terms. It's talking about a relationship. Those who are righteous in the psalmist sense here are those who have a right relationship with God because they are depending upon the Lord and therefore they can count on God to be faithful and deliver them. And again, during times of trials and trouble, we are tempted to believe just the opposite, that God has forsaken us and departed. Not so, says David, God is with us. And that is the same thing Jesus promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Finally, again, I'm summarizing the last four verses. We are to receive redemption or deliverance. Uh, verse 19, none of this means a life of ease or a lack of, pro of problems. But it does mean that God will be with us and God will deliver us either in this life or through this life. Verse 20 is quoted in John 19 and verse 36 as being fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. He himself being delivered through death from his enemies so that we might be forgiven of our sin. And we will be presented after life's trials without spot or wrinkle, not having any condemnation, the last verse there says, for we've been set free through Christ. I know we long for the day when this current crisis is over with when we can go back to whatever normal is. And we can leave behind all of these buzzwords that we're tired of hearing. Social distancing, mask up, unprecedented times. Aren't you sick of hearing those phrases? We long for the day when we can go back to normal life. But when God answers that prayer, and when we do go back to normal, what will we do then? Will we quickly go back to the way we used to live our lives? There's precedent here. It's what we did after 9-11, wasn't it? I mean, after 9-11, for a brief period of time, churches were full. Prayer meetings were well attended. But it didn't last long. Just a few weeks. It doesn't mean we forgot it. But in just a few weeks, we were back to our normal spiritual lives. And my concern is that's what's going to happen when this crisis is likewise over. But the psalmist here tells us that when the crisis is over with, we are to praise God for his faithfulness and his deliverance, and not just for a week or two, but continually. After all, his blessings continue, and all of his blessings are undeserved, and therefore our praise should never expire. 
And then we are to instruct others. Since they are going to go through their own crises, and there are no, no doubt going to be other crises that follow this one, personally and nationally, and therefore we have a responsibility to tell those who come behind us, God is faithful. He delivered us from the crisis of 2020, and he will deliver us from the next crisis that comes as well. Again, either in this life or through this life. So my question for you this morning is simply, are you trusting God during the midst of this crisis? Will you praise him and instruct others after this crisis is over with? Because God is indeed a God of deliverance who is faithful to us, his children. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are a God who delivers. You have delivered many of us from our sin and translated us into your kingdom. And so, Lord, we know that because you've given us the greatest deliverance we could ever hope for, you will likewise deliver us from other crises that we face. Maybe not in our time, but clearly in yours. Maybe not in this life, but in the life to come. And so I pray that we would trust you for deliverance, that we would praise you when that deliverance comes. And we would instruct others who come along behind us that our God is faithful and he delivers his children for eternity. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.